Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, this is Jeff Pooley, and this is New Books in Communications. I just spoke with Vicki Mayer, who is the author of Below the Line, Producers and Production Studies in the New Television Economy, which was published by Duke University Press in 2011. The book is terrific, and I had a great time talking with Vicki. I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk to Vicki Mayer, author of Below the Line, Producers and Production Studies in the New Television Economy, which came out from Duke University Press in 2011. Welcome to New Books and Communications, Vicki, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Jeff. This is a huge honor. Well, I'm completely excited to talk about Below the Line. Uh, The book uh, is a major theoretical contribution to media production studies, and It self-consciously challenges the idea of the TV producer that folks in the industry, uh, as well as academics who study TV, often have in mind. The book traces the history of this TV producer category, which you show came to be defined through notions like creativity and professionalism. Uh, A TV producer, I put that in sort of scare quotes, in the meaning that taken hold is is a member of the creative class who struggles to assert his vision within the constraints of the industry. The book Below the Line upends this definition um, and looks at four major bundles of invisible TV production, television set assemblers in Brazil, uh, softcore video producers in New Orleans, reality TV casters, and even local cable television citizen regulators. Uh, And the book is really quite brilliant in how it gives the lie to the narrow conception of producer that it helps trace in its introduction. Um, And that many, including academics, and even some of the subjects of the study itself, still cling to. Uh, The book is impossible to pigeonhole. It it weaves a theoretical thread through a series of ethnographic portraits that are, are themselves framed by political economic analysis of the industry and the broader economy. Uh, And there's a huge payoff to this Catholic approach. You're able to trace the self-definition that, say, softcore cameramen engage in through their work. Um, They produce themselves, you argue, while producing profits for the softcore industry. What once seemed stable, the idea that TV producers are above-the-line creative professionals, lays in elegantly theorized tatters by the last pages. It's a superb book, and I'm very excited to welcome you, Vicki, to the podcast. Thank you so much again, and uh, and such a wonderful summary of the book, really. Well, great. I mean, I'm curious to hear how the book came about, but before that, uh, I wanted to ask you a bit how you got into the study of media production in the first place. What brought you to graduate school in communication? I've always been uh, kind of charting my own path. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I, you know, made up my own major. Um, I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and had this very romantic idea of 
going into uh, war zones. And so I took, I made my own major and took a, a, just a cluster of classes that maybe were relevant to each other, but like a whole bunch of kind of like area studies, media studies, uh, production, semiotics, literature, languages, all this stuff. And I think at the end of the day, um, I had written this uh, this thesis on comparative uh, ways that Brazilian journalists use foreign correspondence uh, writings to reflect on their own practice, this kind of uh, cultural imperialism thesis. And, and I wanted to be a journalist, and so I went into journalism and quickly saw that actually the kind of journalistic project I was doing for my thesis was a heck of a lot more interesting than the day-to-day routines of doing journalism. And I kind of realized that I could kind of continue to do the kinds of projects that I kind of romanticized being able to do as a, um, as a, you know, a traveling journalist in the academy. Um, so, you know, I see myself as both a researcher and a storyteller and media studies allows me to do that, to, to explore things. You know, the greatest thing about being a journalist is you can go up to anyone you want and ask them any question you want. It's totally legitimate. <laughs> and, and so uh, I get to do that as a researcher now and just, you know, and justify it in terms of questions that are interesting to me. And so you have actually, ironically, become a kind of foreign correspondent, uh, at least in sections of this book. And one of the things that those of you who haven't read the book yet don't know is how well written it is and how much of a storytelling uh, experience it is itself, um, that the chapters are theoretically informed, but also rich in their personal details with the research subjects. Um, And so that comes across really well. Uh, So speaking of the book, I'm curious what the story of it is. It's not a dissertation turned book, right? Um, No. But you do have this, right, you have this uh, little anecdote about your dissertation committee in the acknowledgments of this book, uh, you know, that that some of your committee members, in essence, asked you questions at your defense that that, uh, have come together in this book um, in some ways, almost like a, a... belated answer to those questions way back when. Uh, What led to this book? Well, I think, you know, I I had just an incredible experience as a graduate student. You know, John Caldwell, who's now become kind of the godfather of what people are calling production studies. I worked with him. Um, My advisor was Ellen Sider, who's I think probably one of the most sophisticated theory, like grounded theory uh, researchers there is. I mean, she really thinks deeply about how methods inform what, what you're able to, to say and what questions you're able to answer. And in, in always in these kind of partial ways, I worked with Dan Schiller, who's, you know, calls us to the table constantly to think about the um, corporate and commercializing impetuses behind things that we often think about as 
liberating or purely in terms of our own consumer pleasures. And then, uh, and then Chan Noriega, whose, you know, his questions are always around, you know, you have to historicize, you have to, you can't take identity as something given. It's always a process and it's grounded in historical social movements. Um, and so that those, and George Lipsitz was the other person in the room. <laughs> it was just, it was this insane defense um, where these guys, these like, you know, my idols basically were all having a big debate. And part of the debate was, you know, I'd written, the, my dissertation became my first book, um, Producing Dreams, Consuming Youth, Mexican Americans and Mass Media. And I had kind of wanted to do a, a production consumption study all in one around Mexican-American media and Mexican-American teenagers in San Antonio. And, you know, I spent four years working with the teenagers and about mm, six to ten months interviewing producers. And so we, you know, it was like, okay, you've, you've, le you've learned so much about, you know, audiences and consumption and identity and, but what about these producers? Like, you know, what about this production process? And what about, um, you know, using some of the same methods, you know, kind of careful, um, extended ethnography, participant observation, the things you could do with these kids, what about doing that in the industry? And, and I was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that was really the inspiration that was, I mean, I think that was one primary inspiration for, you know, like I need to look at production. The other thing, and I, I didn't put this in the book, but that kind of came along with it was that, you know, as I've been a professor, you know, now for, oh, going on 12, 13 years, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my students are all, want to work in media industries and they have these very narrow and I think it you know it's part of it is you know the you know the siren call of of Hollywood but part of it's also us like we we only teach about production in the industry in terms of uh you know the big five and the people at the tops of the hierarchies in the big five and you know, we've 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 bought into the colonization of words like creativity and professionalism that really drove me to want to deconstruct that. Yeah, I mean that leads so well into my next question because you know this book looks at case studies mostly through ethnographic methods, right? And um, but you also situate these ethnographies in ways that your committee members would be proud, I think, um, in detailed historical and political economic frames, which leads you to, in some cases, translate, and again, I put that in square, scare quotes, some of the meetings that your subjects describe. Um, you discuss this really eloquently in the case of the TV set assemblers in Brazil, and we, we can talk about that more in a minute, but they were doing creative work, right? And you describe it really in detailed form, but the workers themselves often didn't call it creative. 
and you, mm-hmm. you know, you did. And so how did you navigate this tension between, you know, ethnography and honoring your subject's meanings on the one hand and also honoring the critical analysis often, often informed by, you know, political economy uh, uh, in, in this chapter and others? Yeah, I mean, I think that's like, that's really the crux of an ongoing tension that I always feel. Um, I feel it when I read critical scholarship that feels like it's describing a phenomenon in ways that the subjects participating in that phenomenon would not only would not consider it that way, but would fight you, Mm -hmm. like would, would actually say, no, that's not what I'm doing at all. And, you know, I was just thinking about, um, I was actually uh, just perusing this morning, I was looking again at um, the uses of literacy. And Richard Hoggart, I mean, he he's he has a critical eye towards, you know, the relationship between the working class and media. But he's always very careful to say, we, first of all, that I'm part of this um group but the way i see we is not necessarily the way that my subjects you know the the people i'm writing about my my family in his case see we and i think that tension has to be kept throughout like you can't treat your subjects like dupes but you also have to separate out how you're framing something for a particular audience and how they would frame it themselves. And, and, and in my case, I feel like, I feel like if I were to explain what I meant by creativity and the kinds of aims that I have in redefining creativity, I, I would hope that my subjects would be okay with it. Right. Um, or the ways that I define professionalism um, in a way that's different then, you know, because I, I really, you know, my bigger point was that these terms are really tools um, that prevent us from using them, uh, in, industrial tools that prevent us from using them in ways that don't serve capital. And I think they they probably would be okay with that. Yeah, I think that's right, that the very fact of the Brazilian workers, for example, they're hesitance to use the language of creativity as itself a, a product of the definitions that you're talking about in the book and critiquing. So in speaking of of that critique, um, one of the many delights of reading the book was the history of media production research, which appears in the first chapter. And it's really the, the best I've encountered. And by telling the story of that subfield's history, in some ways, you're calling out researchers from the past uh, and up to the present for contributing to a, a narrow definition of what counts as a media producer. And I'm curious if you can tell those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet, how did media scholars over the decades help make and define media producer in a narrow way, a kind of above-the-line way? Yeah, Um well, I think that there there's a few different movements, and, and just interrupt me if I'm not focusing on what you're thinking about when you're 
um, in your question. Okay, so media production studies. We've got this neologism, this you know new phrase. Um, people throw it around to mean all sorts of things, and I'm not so egotistical to think that I actually invented anything like that, right? So, um, but there have been a lot, a lot of people who've studied the production of media in different ways, and they come from really different camps. I mean, I think a lot of people who write about media production in the States don't realize that, you know, some of the things that they're doing now were done uh, by Ed Buscombe and on, on Hazel in, you know, the 1970s. And, you know, people who are centered in the U.S. also don't realize that there's this, you know, for people who, who worked on, um, you know, I, my background's in communication, so it's, you know, I didn't just study media, you know, in the Hollywood sense, but I've also studied, like, development studies, right? So, you know, back when I wanted to be a journalist, I was really interested in media for development, and there's a whole discourse about media production in there, too. And that dates back to the, you know, the Cold War in the 50s. And so just in a nutshell, you've got groups of people who are de- defining the media producer or media pr- producers as people who are um, incredibly ordinary ways, you know, that production is something that's aligned with uh definitions of just modern civilization um, that, uh, you know, everybody produces kind of, uh, you know, in modern society, uh, these these kind of ordinary senses of media production as uh, a process that ordinary people work through uh, in a system of kind of constraints and, you know, in the terms of the third world, in order to develop, you have to you know, establish institutions. Um, and then you have kind of like the more uh, film studies, I would say, inspired approach to the producer as somehow extraordinary. Um, the hero who rises above, the auteur. And, you know, I love Horace Newcomb's work. And, you know, he's certainly foundational for television studies. Um, but some of that early work around, you know, uh, showrunners as auteurs or production teams as kind of um, heroic, uh, you know, beating through the, you know, even even Todd Gitlin, for all his critical edge, kind of produces these kind of, you know, hagiography, hagiographic accounts of, you know, your, you know, your Norman Lears and your you know, the person that the botch goes and the person who stood out. And as a result, we've, we've kind of come to this point where the television producer is, you know, we see their extraordinary personalities, but we also, you know, ex, uh, what becomes invisible is all the other things, all those institutional, you know, the, the constraints are all just kind of ordinary as opposed to, real people doing real work around these people, creating the conditions that allow them to be extraordinary. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And, you know, the the, the actual organization of the book really makes this argument for you. The first chapter lays out this sort of conception of producer in its narrower form and its 
like you say, it's focused on creativity and professionalism and uh, those who traditionally have worked, quote unquote, above the line. And the book then proceeds case by case to challenge that narrow definition through these rich case studies. And uh, it, it works really well. So for example, the first substantive case is Brazilian TV assemblers who are, are working in uh, the Amazon region. And I'd like you to set it up a little bit for our listeners. But, but before that, uh, I just wanted to mention that the last thing you'd think about uh, in terms of above the line kind of auteurism is television set assemblers, right? And yet these mostly female workers, as you describe in the chapter, engaged in creative work, um, even if they didn't always call it that, as we, we discussed. How do their experiences, um, you label some of their creativity, uh, sanctioned, unsanctioned, and subversive creativity, how do those experiences challenge the way that creativity is bandied about by folks like uh, Richard Florida? Oh, gosh. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So um, this was my first case study that I selected for this project. And I I wanted to um, kind of debunk the Floridian. um, You know, I kind of went in with the idea that Florida with his, so to those of you who don't know, um, Florida defines a creative uh, group in society called the creative class, which is basically a group of upper middle class workers in particular media, uh, cultural arts professions who are grouped together, aggregated by three or four kind of characteristics. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're even kind of crude, like, you know, he basically traces, you know, where do gay people live? And that's, somehow where, you know, where you're going to find the creative class. And it's a very um, rarefied, it's a very exclusive notion of creative. It's a, um, it's a group, it's a definition that really serves policymakers, because then they can go chasing after trying to create the creative class and forget about everyone else um, in their uh, society and help, you know, boost their housing values. Um and I thought, you know, what's, you know, if we think about production as something universal, you know, everyone produces. Um, and if we think about cre- creation, right, creativity as also universal, a la, you know, uh, Dewey and Mead and, you know, progressive, you know, thought about, you know, the fact that everyone has to create in order to uh, develop, you know, like how do you resolve any problem that you come up against? There has to be this creative moment, and that creative moment is both internal and external, right? It's something you do in the mind, and then you uh, enact it uh, through a body performance, and and it's you know very much structured by the society and the people around you. So um, if I take that definition of, of creativity, and I, I'd recommend Hans Joas's book on creativity for kind of that re-theorization today, who would be like the farthest out group that you could imagine? 
And, you know, if you go back to Frankfurt School, it's always the factory worker, right? Like the factory worker whose mind has been deadened to the point where they can't create anything. I said, well, if I go to factory there and I still see that there's creative action going on, then we have to sort of understand, well, well what's how does that work? How, do, how is it operationalized? And I thought that I would go there and nothing would be considered creative. Like I had that old Frankfurt idea that I would go to the factories and nothing that they do would be creative. But, but actually the language that we have around what is creative um, today in creative industries actually comes out of the, the Japanese uh, re-engineering of the factory to be like these creative teams. And so like, yeah, like factory workers were talking about creativity, but they were talking about it in terms of like, you know, team surveillance to make the assembly line faster to post better profits. And so, um, so what I wanted to see was what are all these different ways of doing creativity on an assembly line which of them get recognized, right, sanctioned because, uh, you know, they've made the line faster, um, and which of them are neither sanctioned nor repressed, right, these kind of unsanctioned actions, but that, in fact, help people kind of deal with the routine of, you know, assembly work is incredibly routinized and, um, uh, the only relationship I can I can make to it is when I sit all day writing and my back is killing me. That's kind of like what they do every single day. So so they have to be creative to just keep doing their jobs. And then there's this kind of final way where like people are like trying to you know are being creative to in ways that that managers think are threatening going out and, uh, you know, having a smoke while leaving the, you know, your partners on the team or, you know, there were, there were folks that I met who were fired, who talked about really creative ways they did, you know, they fixed machines and they, you know, re-engineered processes, but then when they wanted credit for it, right. they wanted authorship, um, they were fired because, you know, the manager saw them as a threat. So that's, that's kind of that in a nutshell. Well, what's remarkable about the way the book progresses is you spend that chapter on the Brazilian assemblers sort of shaking one pillar underneath the narrow definition of media producer, and that's creativity. And this second substantive chapter, uh, which looks at freelance softcore cameramen, shakes the second pillar, right? Uh, the, the, the professionalism aspect. And in this chapter, also based on ethnographic research, you're looking at New Orleans-based softcore cameramen who work Mardi Gras and maybe some other Bourbon Street events uh, uh, and work for softcore video companies that package and sell video captured through uh, the Ravelry in infomercials and through other channels. So the cameramen you found call themselves professionals. A lot of them do anyway. Mm -hmm. And that self-definition, though not often honored by their employers or even their female subjects, is tied up in a certain kind of playboy masculinity. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, 
it's a rich chapter. It's way too much to talk about. Uh, and we can get across in a single question, but I mean, what was the importance of professionalism for them? And, you know, how was it anchored in that particular masculinity, especially as it was kind of defined against their female subjects? Yeah, I mean, one kind of central through line throughout the book that I really wanted to kind of drive home is this kind of central contradiction that I see around um, media production, media industries, which is that that media, and in the case of this book, media labor can be um, inc- incredibly pleasurable, right? It can be a point of status. It can be a point of community. Um, all the things that we used to say about media audiences, right? Um, you find it among producers. Media can be on the job. You can play different roles. And the case of the softcore porn people, they were playing the role of the, you know, the weekend Hugh Hefner, the guy who gets all the girls and, uh, you know, is kind of, you know, envied by all his male friends. It's actually really funny because they're not actually getting all the girls, but they are getting the envy of their male friends. So it's really like this kind of, you know, homosocial male bonding (laughs) (laughs) scenario. But at the same time, that the contradiction in that is the pleasures of identification, the pleasures of identity building are totally couched in a political economy that co-ops that pleasure and uses it for its own ends, right? So the games, the the performances on the street um, are always used by these industries to basically cheapen the value of the product that they're making. Um, these guys worked in horrible conditions, had, you know, they, they're the epitome of what we call today a precariat, completely freelance, uh, no security. The idea that you would last more than one Mardi Gras is, is, you know, doubtful even, you know, most of the turnover in this industry is, is incredible. And and yet, you know, the industry is populated by all these high, you know, Ivy League film school graduates, you know, like they're the, the industry can totally use this lure of the identity to evacuate the term professional in any of the material ways we would associate with it, like making a good earning, having benefits being able to save, you know, having a retirement. I mean, none of that is on the table in this new definition of, of a professional. It's only the identity that's, that's for offer. It seems like. If that comes across so clearly in the, the actual ethnographic reporting that you do in the chapter and that tension, the, the sort of pride of professionalism that many of these cameramen feel on the one hand and the way that that thin notion of professional identity so well services and pads the accounts of the softcore companies that employ them often for very low wages or even uh, freelance work in most cases, right? So what was it like in particular conducting that ethnographic work? Here you were out on the streets of New Orleans, uh, a female researcher 
working with uh, and trying to acquire the confidence of these male cameramen who themselves were attempting to convince often young women to expose themselves. Uh, What was that like as a research challenge? Well, you know, ethnographers will always, you know, kind of belabor the the issues around field entry. And, you know, there's, you know, lots of folks who don't do ethnography simply because, you know, field entry, depending on what they feel that they choose, takes time. I mean, I spent about six months just trying to break into this um, community. And if you read the chapter, those of you who haven't read the chapter, there's kind of two generations of these producers. So even after I'd broken into kind of the first generation of producers, um, the softcore guys, um, the younger guys, the ones that are all teamed up at like girls gone wild kind of uh, outfits, I hadn't broken into them yet. And so that took like another um, season. And so I was, you know, each chapter really shows a different kind of ethno- ethnographic process. This ethnographic process was really around patience and careful um, accruing of contacts who would then uh, be, you know, who, who then were kind of leaders for me and kind of, you know, introduced me to members of the tribe, you know, mm-hmm. And, you know, once I was in, you know, there's, there are always uncomfortable moments. I mean, I actually, this isn't part of the chapter, but I mean, some of these guys, they also did kind of, you know, uh, porn stuff on the side. And there are all these swingers who are in town doing all sorts of different kinds of mediated stuff um, during the, the, you know, Mardi Gras two weeks long. So during this two week period, I was kind of out uh, from sundown to uh daybreak uh every night and yeah my students love that i'd be like a zombie and uh but i was like kind of shadowing these folks and you know once i was part of the the group like you know they'd be like hey babe can you you know hold a light for me you know i became you know part of the production crew in some cases because I'm you know I'm there and I'm just watching and you know asking questions and they got to explain me somehow you know why I'm there so so you know sometimes I thought it was really funny um, but it's like any group I mean this is one of those things that ethnography is so great for is you realize you know even you know doesn't matter what the community is you're studying there's always some folks who are really great um, there's always some folks who are total assholes, you know, so, um, that, you know, those, you know, differentiation between people and the community isn't, it's not exclusive to a particular community, even in softcore, there's, there were some real nice guys. And, you know, we had great conversations about all sorts of things. Well, I imagine the experience with the next chapters, uh, subjects, the reality showcasters, was similar in that respect. Um, the reality showcasters are essentially brokers, right? Who buy and sell access to reality TV cast members that studios want. Um, mm-hmm. And and as you describe, and I hadn't realized this, they're typically women or else gay men. And like the other cases, each of the cases you describe in the book, they're basically invisible. 
to the wider industry and to scholars as well. Uh, and and these reality casters are, in essence, they're experts, right, on living people. I mean, they're selling cast members, pitching them really to reality TV uh, makers. And it's a chapter that can't be summarized, but maybe you could focus on the role of the casting calls, which I thought was really interesting at places like suburban malls uh, and, and, and also scouting. Um, and maybe before turning to how they in turn sell themselves, these casters and their would-be cast members to the reality TV makers. Yeah. Um, so originally, you know, the, so there's a lot in common between the softcore folks and the casters, just in terms of, you know, uh, similar demographics, casting, just like softcore is, a, you know, really an entry-level position, particularly for reality um, a lot of people who get into it, like actually tried to, tried out on a reality show and didn't get in, but then ended up being a caster. So like I was always kind of, you know, I was on the fence for a long time as to who was going to be the professionals and who was going to be the, the sponsors, I call them. Um, the last two chapters, sponsors and regulators are really to signify invisible labors that everyone is called upon to do. Um, in this new television economy and, you know, selling, I mean, now we're talking about it a lot. I mean, I started working on this book in 2003, so like 10 years ago. And, you know, what we now call self-branding and, you know, uh, you know, performing emotional labor and immaterial labor, all those sorts of things. That was really just starting to be talked about 10 years ago. So I was really, I was hearing all this stuff, but I, I didn't really have a framework for what to make of all of it. It just seemed like the main point that the fact that the main point of the casting call wasn't really to just find cast members, I think was the first big light bulb that went off that like something else is going on here something much more fundamental to what this new television economy is. So, so just to kind of summarize the casting call, you know, these are these here in the U S there are these big branded events and they, you know, they're in cahoots with local affiliates, you know, after FinCEN networks could produce their own content. So they produce a lot of reality shows because it's really cheap so, you know, in order to kind of promote the local affiliates for the networks, they'll go out, they'll do these big casting calls, and they're really just these huge marketing events um, for the networks, right? Um, ABC is coming out with an, the next version of The Biggest Loser or The Nanny or, you know, whatever. Um, and... So, I mean, it's promotion all the way down, right? <laughs> Elephants all the way down. Um, it's like, the, the, you know, the, the network is promoting itself. The mall is promoting itself. The local affiliate is covering this as a news event to promote itself. And then the casters, kind of the ringleader, kind of managing all of this marketing while uh, to different, you know, populations while at the same time collecting all this 
audience and demographic data for the production team back home. So like if any of you have been in a, a casting call, there's like pages of personal information that people willingly give <laughs> about like their income, their men their state of mental health, their police records. I mean, all of this stuff. And as a whole, by the end of the day, the caster can tell you just by showing who showed up and looking at the files, like who's going to watch the show. I mean, it's, it's like everyone keeps talking about like, you know, in, in marketing circles, like how to build a better, you know, Nielsen people meter that will, you know, follow you around. This is like a huge circus people meter that kind of goes <laughs> coming to a city near you, right? We're going to put on a show, you know, where all the people sit around and they watch other people try out and it's kind of a big spectacle. And, uh, and then, uh, and then you've got all this data that you would never have otherwise because people are freely giving it. it it's kind of crazy. I mean, in scouting, it's, it's much more, uh, you know, instead of, you know, if you think about one's pursuing the mass audience and another kind is pursuing the niche audience, scouting is definitely pursuing the niche audience. It's, you know, a one-on-one -on -one, I'm going to pitch you why you should be on this program while at the same time, like selling the idea of the program and the idea of, you know, the program in this dance club or in this place where we want to get that niche demographic. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like, I was reading all these histories of like advertising and marketing and I was like, holy shit, it's all the same pitch, you know, and, and these casters, you know, they, they, they frame it in similar ways, you know, um, you know, on one hand as, as kind of this market research that they do. Is that kind of what you were going for? Yeah. And I was also uh, fascinated by the ways that the casters themselves talked about on the one hand, the, their skills in a meritocratic yeah. way. And on the other hand, Reference to the sort of feminized skill set um, having to do with kind of emotional labor and reading people and making connections with people that they sort of lived with this tension, expressed it to you in discussions, and in some ways were giving license to the reality TV production companies to disregard them uh, um, as a result. In other words, they're sort of their identities that they acquired through their work, in part by drawing on kind of residual. Uh, uh, expectations about the feminized nature of that kind of work um, was then sort of licensed for the reality TV production staff to yeah no it's them. the flip yeah yeah it's the flip side of the softcore guys right because the industry can underpay the softcore guys and, and not give any benefits because they get to be Hugh Hefner's on the weekends and they can similarly dismiss and devalue casters' labor because you know, women and gay men are just naturally friendly. So why do we have to pay them? Like, you know, they're just doing what they would naturally, you know, they're just gossips and they're just gossiping for pay now. Like they, sh they should be happy. These aren't skills. Um, and, and it's so funny because the casters have to be in this kind of constant double consciousness about it. Um, you know, on one hand being totally, totally recognizing the fact that the industry 
devalues them, while at the same time promoting their ability to do precisely the things that are devalued, right? As opposed to promoting themselves as like, what if what if casters were to frame them their labor as marketing? <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't it be valued more? I mean, market researchers, I'm sure, make more than casters, even though they're doing exact some of the same things. Absolutely, and you know, some of that unpaid labor, the invisibility of their labor, uh, is reproduced in a startlingly different case, which you know, in the juxtaposition of the casters chapter to the last and final substantive chapter on local cable TV uh, volunteer citizen regulators um, draws the thread through the book just because of the stark contrast in the subjects. Because in this last chapter, you're looking at these regulatory bodies, some of them created to manage franchise agreements uh, between municipalities and cable companies beginning in the 1970s. And in this chapter, your approach is slightly different, even methodologically, because you served on two of these bodies um, living in Texas and in California. And you draw on your personal experience and your notes from the time to talk about this particular form of media production that no one would think of as being media production that's certainly invisible. Um, And you suggest, however, that, you know, these regulators these citizen regulators, these volunteers play an important legitimating role for for cities and for the industry. So how so and how does that work? Yeah, so um, yeah, you're right. I was kind of like the embedded regulator in this uh, in these uh, two cities um, where I one in which I was uh, invited um, by the by the board and the other where I was appointed and um, the really, really different uh, cities. One was San Antonio, Texas, large city, dominant Mexican American population. The other, uh, Davis, California, small college town, white majority, white educated majority. And what struck me about how people, well, a few things really struck me. One was that the kind of identity politics of representation that went on on these boards, right? Um, You know, in talking about, you know, in just classic representational democracy sense, like, you know, I'm, I'm appointed here, I'm serving here to represent a community and my community is fill in the blank, you know, affluent, working class, Mexican-American, Anglo-American, you know, et cetera. But what really struck me is the way in which those claims could be so easily taken up by the cable companies, right? Those, you know, the multicultural politics of governance and representation could so easily be satisfied by the cable company opening a new market niche, selling a new product, um, you know, offering, you know, the offering of broadband in this country is extremely politicized around identity politic lines, which at the end of the day, like, you know, you would say, well, shouldn't the fight be about 
free, open access to, you know, basic communication technologies that we all rely on today? Like, I mean, those kinds of questions never even got to the table because the discourse around how to frame claims were already circumscribed in a way that they had to be about consumption, right? Consumer product marketing, you know, channel lineups. I mean, you name it. And, you know, it it was, um, you know, things that were about the public were constantly being uh, reinscribed in terms of private profit models. So like regulators who are supposedly representing the public end up becoming kind of handmaidens to helping Cox or Time Warner or whatever company make more money in that community. Which is such an irony, given that they're also utterly rendered invisible by their process. And cities take claim as well, don't they, for their labor? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, I find out, you know, I found out about these things because, you know, in both cases, I was new to town and I was, you know, kind of flipping around on my, you know, cable program. And, you know, there's that community bulletin board where, you know, things like this get posted. And, uh, you know, I, I went and I, you know, this is in San Antonio, I talked to my city councilman and, um, you know, he, he kind of looked at me like, you know, okay, yeah, you're, you're one of those professor types who's doing their you know, public duty, because you start looking around and it's like, gosh, we're all like, you know, I was the youngest one on there at the time I was in my 30s, I'd say the average age of folks was maybe 55, 60 years old, lots of retirees, lots of professors or media professionals, like guys who'd work for the cable company or, you know, published a newspaper or it is a group that, you know, is used to getting paid for this kind of expertise and that cities need in order to, because they're not willing to hire real cable profession, you know, like real lawyers to do some of this work or real staffers who can, you know, actually, you know, come up with alternative solutions that would be viably funded by the public. I mean... It's a lot of free labor. And that's almost a thread that runs through the entire book, the way in which these various forms of media production, broadly considered, are underpaid or not paid at all, and the ways in which the identities that these workers acquire in part through the work often helps justify that lack of pay and lack of recognition. And you actually take this thread that's been going through all of these four case studies in your conclusion and ask what's at stake um, for all this invisibility. And you have obviously attempted in the book in all these different ways to expose and bring to visibility the forms of media production that haven't been included in the definition that the industry uses and that even scholars have been using. So I just invite you to discuss that conclusion, your, your point about the injustice of this invisible labor and what it means for media production studies going forward. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, any critical project is 
you know, has at least, you know, like at least three parts, right? It um, deconstructs the object. It's self-reflexive or has a notion of reflexivity towards the process. And it helps people imagine um, alternate futures. And so in the conclusion, I really, I have this tendency where I, you know, I build up this argument. I was like, God, that's such a bummer. Like what, what, what good could come out of this? What was, what, you know, like to say that these things that we see as really pleasurable identifications or, you know, labor we freely give because we want to volunteer or serve, like to see how those always still serve the bottom line. I wanted to think about an alternative social future in terms of, well, if we know that that's the process, if we know that that cuts across not just within Hollywood, but all of these places outside of Hollywood, all of these different jobs, could we imagine another kind of solidarity um, movement? I mean, I think that uh, those of us who see kind of the uh, advantages, but also the kind of pitfalls that the union movements have had has been really around not being able to build solidarities out of beyond professional class, craft, trade definitions. And I think building identities, though, that cuts across a wide range of kinds of, of um, you know, different kinds of jobs and different kinds of work. And when people realize that, like, the thing that they think is pleasurable is actually the alibi for not getting paid, I think that could be a really powerful way to think rethink those bonds um i don't know how it would happen i don't know maybe the book was just my small intervention into that and what about even the implications for fellow scholars you know in terms of what counts as media production and you know what should be grabbing the attention of scholars who are interested in media production um, who might use that term though a bit more narrowly than you do here yeah, I mean, I, I've had people come up to me afterwards and say things like, um, you know, after I've given a presentation and say, like, wait a minute, I can't talk about, uh, you know, TV show producers anymore. I have to talk about manufacturers, too. Like, you know, why don't I just talk about everything? You know, are you really just saying we need to talk about everything? And I guess for me, the orientation, it's really about the difference between you know, asking critical questions versus um, delving into topics. Um, I just saw this great talk by James Curran, where he said that um, media studies, media is not the object of media studies. Media is simply the starting point. And so for me, there are critical questions about the nature of uh, labor exploitation, the relationship between um, things that are personal, like affect, and things that are structural, like resource access, that, you know, I think we should be asking about, and those things are, you know, to me, more important questions, maybe theoretical questions in communication that are more important than, you know, how did the cable industry create the fragmented media landscape. 
<laughs> just to give an example. <laughs> well, one of the things that we haven't been able to talk about is just the sheer depth of learning and uh, uh, theoretical engagement that each of the chapters entails. It's almost like uh, going through graduate school again, reading these chapters and the the way in which the ethnography, its richness is maintained, but the ethnography is then supplemented by often detailed history and analysis of the industry. It's just very unusual and really, really uh, refreshing to experience. And I encourage those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet to read the text itself and uh, to follow the thread of the argument through each of these rich substantive chapters. Um, is there anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about? Well, I just, I keep coming back to this contradiction, right? The, I think it's always, I think that's why I do this. Like media holds an incredible aura, an incredible sway in our society that justifies people doing things that, in the case of this book, it was doing things that 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 they didn't get valued for, you know, they weren't recognized for. In my next book, I want to talk about how that aura promotes runaway film uh, economies, and I want to kind of demystify that aura of the runaway film economy. And I, um, the title or the tentative title of the next book, it's called Almost Hollywood, uh, Time, Space and Place in Hollywood South. And uh, it's based here in New Orleans um, and it takes a temporal, spatial, uh, cultural, geographic and a reception study approach to looking at um, people's uh, New Orleanians investments in Hollywood South as an idea, as a, as the film production economy as, as saving or being some kind of, some kind of special economy in uh, the region. So that's a, uh, that's ongoing research. And uh, the best thing about like doing this work is like getting to just dig in deep into a whole bunch of topics. I, you know, maybe don't know a heck of a lot about. So right now I'm, I'm, there's a historical part to the project that I've been delving into archives um, about, you know, New Orleans film production and film studios in the 19 teens <laughs> here. And, and then I've been doing a lot of like cultural geography and I'm using GIS to map production locations and its impacts on the, spatial uh landscape and i'm and i'm doing reception analysis which i haven't done in a, uh, since my first book so that's that's a lot of fun as well well it sounds like a wonderful project and uh you don't have to have you on the podcast when that gets published um it sounds <sighs> you know as sweeping as uh this project well thank you again vicky for taking the time with me and uh, congratulations again on a truly exciting book Thank you so much. And, and really, you're just a wonderful interviewer. I'm so glad you're doing this series. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in Communications. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.